0: Hey, holly hey dave what's going on with yourself today on the what difference does it make podcast
1: i am standing back today and letting somebody else take over
0: okay well <laughs> i will take over here okay so i'll just pot you down so you can't talk okay, no, that is not what I oh wh- I think we should let oh, our wow, guest oh, oh we're okay. gonna
1: stand back And we are going to allow our guest, Simon Morrison, to take over today.
0: They're shoehorning this thing in. Uh, That's fine. We're talking to Simon Morrison. He's got a book that's out now. It's called Mirror in the Sky, The Life and Music of Stevie Nicks. You heard of Stevie Nicks? Are you familiar
1: (laughs) with this artist? I am so familiar with Stevie Nicks. That's why it was so hard for me to come to an intro because there are so many song titles from which to choose, right? She's got a massive catalog and he goes into all of it.
0: we are talk about the history of Stevie Nicks. And uh, because Simon is an academic, he's got things on his mind. And he shares it all it, with uh, with those uh, $5, what are they, $5 words? How expensive are these words? Aren't they
1: like $1,000 words?
0: I don't think they're $1,000. I think they're like $0.50. Uh, cent? $0.50 cent words. <laughs> I can't remember what, what they call it. But yeah, these are expensive words he's throwing down. I had to constantly consult my dictionary when I was reading this book, but it's still <laughs> <laughs> Simon is wonderful. We we love him a lot.
1: One of the reasons we love him is Dave. I find that he does something similar to you, and he digs deep. When he finds out something, a fact that interests him, he really goes for it. He wants to know everything about it. Yeah, even worse and than you I mean. do the same, which I love.
0: No, it's mm-hmm. it, he goes way deeper than I do. He. I'm just surface deep. He's digging. He's getting water. He's digging so far down. It's crazy. (laughs) That's why we love Simon.
1: After you listen to this podcast, if you would like to hear some outtakes, please check out our YouTube channel at What Difference Does It Make Podcast and on our other social media at WDDIM Podcast. And you'll find bits and pieces of Simon talking about Stevie Nicks. All
0: right. I love that. Okay. So let's just get right into it now. We don't need to stand back anymore we are going into the virtual studios and talk with simon morrison the author of mirror in the sky the life and music of stevie nicks on the what difference does it make podcast
1: i was gonna say we're going into the room on fire
0: Uh, no i was not going to say that (laughs) oh my god there he is again
1: hi simon how are you good how are you
2: The eternal return.
1: (laughs) Nice to see you again.
0: We started off our podcast last time with you talking Stevie
2: Nicks.
1: And it seemed so far away when we talked about talking to you about about the book at some point. It just felt far away and...
2: Yeah, it was a long, it was a long, you know, sort of run up to this. I kind of wanted to do this for a long time and uh, kicked it around with the University of California Press and how to do it. And it was a harder book to write than I thought it would be. And not simply because of the the characters in question, but just the nature of the song, actually, it was really difficult to sort of get my handle around them and also to understand the recording processes and the ins and outs of the record industry as as Stevie Nicks defined them. Those those things were actually really hard to navigate.
1: the characters alone, of which there are many. There's the artist
2: herself. There's what I went for was kind of the producers and the people. You know, Danny Goldberg, who kind of managed her in the '80s after she parted company with Fleetwood Mac in fairly fraught circumstances. But I was I was really interested in Ken Calais and um, you know those Fleetwood Mac, those iconic albums. Dialoguing with him and Rick Knowles was great. And then some of the other sort of characters that were in and out of her life at sort of, you know, personal level. I also talk with a lot of people who aren't in the book, like all of the photographers. There's a kind of cordon sanitaire that she puts around the people in her life. I mean, she keeps, you know, keeps a very tight circle. So my approach to actually her and knowing this ahead of time was simply to uh, let her know that I was planning on writing this book, you know, Dialoguing with Karen Johnson. And initially a lot of suspicion about that because, you know, an academic coming at this, is this going to be another, A, is is this going to be another biography? And uh, she's allergic to the book format in general, but B, whether or not it would be some sort of, I think, critique takedown or something like that says, you know, academic kind of coming at this rather than, you know, what I tried to do is actually an appreciation, but also thinking about misogyny and the record industry and the things that she had to overcome and how she needed to be better. Than a lot of the people around her. Savvier, and as an artist, I always thought she was an eminent artist. That actually became very acute, is kind of the um, the fight and the strength she had to show through the years. So, in the end, what I did was, you know, I went at it, let them know about this book, and knew that it would be a fairly chilly reaction. And then, as the project developed, I, I kept sending texts their way. And if I find it out interesting biographical details, I'd send it that way as well. That was my approach. I didn't think of this as any sort of project that would be authorized. I didn't want to write a straight biography. I kind of wanted to write a biography of the songs and also get away from this idea that somehow all of those songs are about her or about personal things that happened to her because. Listening to them and, you know, the the demos as well as the the perfected products, I found that, I guess the word is multivalence, um, they point in many different directions. Yeah. So the idea that they are about one thing and that's inevitably biographical, that, that was quickly thrown out the window, I found.
1: You made it clear that most of them, and I guess this is common with a lot of artists, someone you see as one character can be taken from a variety of experiences and people
2: yeah there's a lot of evidence to that in the way she assembles her songs she's a great diary keeper well i've seen some of the diaries and they're not there some of it is like housekeeping so-and-so did this we went out to dinner so-and-so was late at the studio but a lot of it is actually creative writing that she does and so for um, assembling lyrics to you know even some of the hit songs you know she would actually peruse her diaries for some poetry that actually would suit or not to. And people have complained about this with actually, without actually seeing the value in it, is that the songs are kind of elusive. You can't pin them down. But, you know, if something like Sarah is like, is, it, is Sarah the name of a child she lost? Or is Sarah the name of Sarah Record, Or is it, you know, some other... Or is, the question is like, why does it have to be the one thing? Because the history of art songs, and I do think these songs are very artful and kind of highbrow, It's Paula Valence. It's the idea that, She as an artist went from, frankly, new in the 70s and in the 80s and 90s, she as an artist went from somebody who is on stage, um, you know, representing aspects of herself and her literary leanings and interests, but also then at a certain point, you know, representing the dialogues with herself, so representing representation, you know. And that's, that's where I think that the, the songs are really, really striking is when you get into that realm of mm-hmm. thinking through the topic as part of the song itself.
0: that was in the book that I read that kind of piqued my interest was uh, you said that uh, she claims not to remember her childhood, but her music does. Yeah. I guess that leaves a lot to interpretation.
2: What I meant by that was that there are a lot of gaps actually in her memory. And there are a lot of gaps in my own memory. I can't remember what was going on when I was six and five and this is a superstar who's led a very busy existence uh, around the globe but I found that in being an archival rat as I am and and really loving kind of of digging and digging and digging and finding out like where did she sing with her grandpa when she was a kid Where, where exactly was that you know what was the address how many tables you know this kind of like detective thing that I, re- I really got all about and, and then find out something and then send it to her and say see this is actually where you sang you know? um but um because it wasn't arizona it was actually la what i did find though is that the reason that line it's paradoxical right okay so she she might not remember but the songs there was a because of the the poetry that she kept over the years there's a blending of things that are part biographical, but part like stories and things that she heard from her grandparents primarily. She she was very close to her grandmother named Alice, who's actually a character in a lot of her songs and from an old sort of mining uh, background in Arizona. So she's there a lot in some a lot of the poetry. And then I think what happens is when she creates a song like Alice, which relates to Alice in Wonderland, there's a sort of tripping that takes place on the poetic level where actually something that she heard or... THE STORY OF ALICE THAT WAS TOLD TO HER BY THE GRANDMOTHER ALICE. ACTUALLY, THOSE TWO THINGS FOLD TOGETHER. also think that a lot of the song a lot of the intonations of the songs especially the demos and especially the sort of more recent album with 24 karat gold which is a kind of rock country sound that's a kind of throwback that there's a way in which the music and the intonations of the music and her voice actually do hearken back to a lot of childhood inspiration
1: okay and speaking about childhood yeah. something which i didn't know and didn't know about her is that she's kept these lifelong friends and how she, how much she values the lifelong friends it gives you an added perspective on her
2: yeah um girlfriends female friends um a few trusted men who have been in her life both on the business front and the creative front as well as personally so um azov or renas on this of you know record industry mogul though well, she still goes to his place on sundays for movie night in-house i mean when you're a superstar it's not so easy to go to the multiplex and um you know so she did this kind of and, and dinners and so forth so this is kind of small group of friends that i think she feels um, you know just speaking her mind with. But I think being a superstar, and then she she very quickly became a superstar with Fleetwood Mac after, you know, a fairly innocuous start, that the people that um, were with her through her musical upbringing and stayed with her, they became trusted confidants. And to this day, I mean, she lives with a lot of these people, and um, you know, like Karen Johnson's been with her forever. When you have a completely public persona, and you know, that's these private, these relationships that have been with you that you can trust and hang on to. I mean, they're the most important. Whereas the men in her life and these, you know, romances that are tabloid fodder, they seem—I I hate to use the word transactional—but I don't think that they're as important as these lifelong uh, relationships that date back to her adolescence and twenties, primarily with women. I mean. I-
0: She wasn't that young when she joined Fleetwood Mac. She was 28. And so, and she had like this, this whole career before there's this band, Fritz. I was not familiar with Fritz. And it was actually kind of interesting in that you mentioned one song, When We Love Again, that's similar to Taylor Swift. So it's kind of, you know, like, is that subliminally passing the torch? She was highly musical
2: because of her kind of grandfather background. Um, There was a lot of music in her life growing up. But she moved around endlessly because her father was a very ambitious, aggressively ambitious kind of corporate food and beverage type. And um, he really, really rose high. So she was actually from a fairly privileged background. But the uh, parents were very happy to support her going to college, you know, going into communications or linguistics you know, or literature, English. And then there was when it came to actually uh, playing around with actually becoming a rock star, it was like, you can do this for a while, and, but, you know, if you want a lifeline, it's here for you. So she did do the kind of, like, it's cool to be poor thing for a while. But, yeah, I mean, from middle school into high school, she was in talent shows, so the, you know, the usual sort of whirling baton thing. When she was in high school out here, she joined a band called Changing Times, which was very Mamas and Papas, and they were lovely from what I could tell, and they performed a lot of high school shows, and they did some benefits, and, you know, the high school yearbooks tout them, and the repertoire was very much that kind of Mamas and Papas sound. Kids, the, the, the two boys in the band were very religious types, and they actually stayed in music and actually did record Um, Some Christian type albums. And then after she met Buckingham, um, which was at a a social event, which was kind of a a sort of Christian fellowship thing. So it's a place where, you know, boys and girls could meet one another in a sort of safe space. And they hit it off. And it was through them that they were brought into contact with um, this fellow, Javier Pacheco, who runs, who ran uh, the band Fritz. And that band was always, you know, in Fleawood Mac lore, pre Fleawood Mac lore, it's like, okay, so you have Fleetwood Mac has, you know, this old British, you know, blues kind of group that's having hard times is out in Los Angeles in Sound City trying to get, you know, band back together and fill in some missing pieces. And then you have these two kids, uh, Lindsay Buckingham and Stevie Nicks, who come out of this psychedelic band from the Bay Area called Prince, right? But I listen to all the music and I'm like, the psychedelia. I mean, you're not, this is not like hurdy-gurdy man kind of psychedelia, right? It's. <laughs> it was just, they, there was some kind of like freak out, Sort of jam session type sounds and musical happenings they did, but they roamed all over the place. It's more than you need. I was stunned by was besides the kind of crazy quality of the musicianship, but how much music those kids memorized and actually just played these huge shows with all of these different styles and new songs and cover tunes. I mean, Ray Charles to Jefferson Airplane type tracks and, um, and then the new stuff that they wrote. So they were all over the place. And because the founder of the band is still around and I think bristles a little bit about what happened to Fritz and also the fact that, you know, that was a very popular group for a while within that sort of Bay circuit and he's tried recently to, you know, preserve some of the music and put out, you know, some memorabilia associated with them. But the fact that, you know, when they were looking for a record contract and their manager met with a young Keith Olson and Keith Olson was like, eh, this Fritz group is, they're too dissolute. They're too all over the place. But those two, there's real charisma there. And she in particular had this, Lindsay Buckingham was always you know, a savant kind of self-taught and amazing finger-picking guitar player. Um, but she had this incredible charisma and you know, he put his eyes on those two. All right, we're digging in with Simon Morrison. He's the
0: detail man. He knows more about Stevie Nicks than Stevie does apparently. And we're gonna dig some more right after the break.
1: Welcome back to the What Difference Does It Make podcast and our guest, Simon Morrison, talking about Mirror in the Sky, the life and music of Stevie Nicks.
0: So Stevie has a lot of friends she's been an honorary member of a lot of groups you know heartbreakers mm-hmm. and she's an honorary now, yeah, yeah. foo fighters uh she's a gorilla now an honorary yeah, gorilla
3: yeah,
0: yeah. i think she's been animated uh, so i think the, the
2: the petty relationship creatively was really really something that was important to her and the two of them actually you know stole each other's songs <laughs> and uh so that that became the kind of friendship that was the replace you know um, the kind of creative bond she had not the personal bond the creative bond that she had with buckingham so even when fleetwood mac was still um you know in tusk you know late 70s and I mean, just when tom Petty was getting started she was drawn to him and that particular sound that he created you can do a lot of thought experiments with like what might have been but the tom Petty heartbreakers thing she really wanted to be part of that group and he was not happy with her and her entourage showing up at the studio and this oh. was not this is not how it was done but she overcame that and then the other the other intri- intriguing kind of you know creative relationship with Prince right cuz they actually uh, well worked on a track together and she kind of recoded or redid a song of his little red corvette and that became a hit of hers you know in her sort of taking of the harmonies and actually creating a track to it this is um, the song
0: stand back
2: you're talking stand about stand back yeah where she heard little red corvette story uh, which she often tells us she heard that on the radio in the brief period in time in which she was married. <laughs> she misheard the lyrics of "Stand Back" and then, you know, got really interested in actually, you know, creating a new version of that song. She was touring. She actually hung out with him in Minneapolis and uh, went to his place. And there's a there's a demo that they actually knocked around, um, which hasn't become available. It's locked up in the Prince vault. But then, um, interestingly enough, actually a fan of both Stevie Nicks and Prince actually went into the kind of the, you know into the studio and actually created a mock up demo, which was actually surfaced. It's like floats around online. It's like, is this the sort of long lost demo between Prince and Stevie Nicks? But it's just it's called All Over You. And it's not, it's a complete contrafactum. But one of the things that the enormous Stevie Nicks fan base actually, I was <laughs> challenged to actually answer the question is whether or not that was authentic or not. And I actually found out from Nick, Rick Knowles that no, it's actually, it was not, it was just like screwing around in the studio. And Rick said, I can't believe that track is actually floating around yeah. online but it was, you
1: know. So. He's sending Dave out on a hunt for it. Oh so, sure. yeah,
2: the Tom Petty Heartbreakers, that was a close relationship. Prince was, I think she was just intrigued by his persona.
0: I think Edge of Seventeen inspired him to write When Doves Cry, or according to yeah, Stevie, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so there's that. It goes back and forth. And then, of course, you, in your introduction, you talk about this great concert footage from 1979. She's wearing a beret, and, you know, she's singing Angel and just, you know, owning the stage, but allegedly Raspberry Beret came from, you know, if you ask Stevie, she thinks Raspberry Beret was partly inspired by Stevie.
1: Yeah! (laughs) Are you going with that? but, But she didn't, she didn't, like, spend a lot
2: of time with him in the end. I think that there's an element of kind of fantasy in terms of her actually seeing these relationships. Surely they listen to each other's music and I can see that. But I don't think there's like direct evidence for that
0: one way or another. Well, for what it's worth, I I listened, well, I'll mention for what it's worth, but anyway. <laughs> <it's> but, worth. <laughs> but I just listened to, she just did an interview with Zane Lowe and she mentioned Prince a lot and she mentioned those stories. So I just wanted to hear what uh, your thoughts on that. These are still fresh in her mind. And she acknowledged that she didn't see Prince a lot, but, you know, they somehow inspired each other the ether well there was that, that
2: that was a really intense and fabulous moment where he whisked into the studio and laid down the limb Lynn drum track uh for what eventually became stand back and he actually put out and he could do all of that synthesizer stuff right and yeah she had she had the sort of tune and lyrics almost together and that was a real magical happening for her and i think that that and then they did do the one the one wonderful thing and we don't have any footage of this but there was an after party that he did at what became the, the i guess the mall of america right outside of minneapolis that did a show and she turned up and it was an after party where they did like four or five songs together and she was the Tam green and so forth and so on we don't have any record of that and I tell you, you know the Stevie Nicks fan base and the cognoscenti are intense, but the Prince people—they're amazing. I mean, they like literally every minute of that fellow's life. You know, they have actually documented. Yeah. So, but I went to them to find out what exactly might have been sung, and they couldn't actually ID it themselves. So there was there—they they did a concert together. The other thing was like, why are there no photographs of the two of them? You know, and that apparently was Prince. He wanted to actually you know photograph and document this, but he you know, had this real tight control over his. His image so do you consider her like a
0: loner or something i mean you don't you know ultimately it's well, I, I she, don't can't, know. she can't go out
2: as superstars they can't go out right so she she dated occasionally with people you know, even recently but you know it always it's, it tends to be you know one of the problems is you can't go out anywhere she is a loner and she spends an awful lot of time by herself um, with, with her friends you know our, Sort of handlers or ladies in waiting, whatever you want to call them, <laughs> and uh, with her dogs and so forth. So, and it's she's she's obviously really you know she's up on the news. She talks endlessly about like Uvalde, in Ukraine, and she cares about these issues. It's part of her, and this is actually not represented anywhere. But I think that there's very much you know that tradition in American songwriting. You know, that dates right back even to you know, Appalachia, but sort of the early country sound and country rock sound, where a lot of that music was actually you know, really socially attuned and was about the plight of the underclasses and the dispossessed and so forth. And I think that there's an aspect of her songwriting that was never really fully realized, but I think that kind of a sort of activist street in the idea that actually music should be actually a kind of social consciousness or a political consciousness. And that's why this cover she did, the Stills track, right? But mm-hmm. sort of, um, she talks about that on this current tour of, as being, you know, she ran into the studio right after Uvalde and reported that. You know, it was about that, and and but she's also said it's about the Supreme Court's decision to take away women's bodily auto autonomy, and and so it's I think in general it's it's she's she seems to be increasingly I think after many many years with Fleetwood Mac living in a kind of bubble of superstardom and, and being detached and being fairly decadent I think that there's been a kind of a reckoning with a lot of that uh, which maturation brings to you but also a sense that. Yeah there was the music that she grew up listening to was actually really engaged
3: Something happened in here what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there
0: Maybe needs a collaborator, but maybe make her confident that this is the right decision or say something in the opposite direction and she has to push for it or you know just to make sure that's the right thing to do. For I, I
2: do, you know, a lot of the artists I study and composers I've studied, they've tended to needed some sort of sounding board or point of influence or point of contact to respond with or go against. And I think that that's been the case with her increasingly. You know, I do think that the best of times that she had with Lindsay Buckingham, he would actually bring an idea about how to harmonize something and, you know, how to work out something or get the kinks out of things. And, and sometimes that would be horribly frustrating for her. But oftentimes, you know, it became he was able to actually take something that she had in a sort of sort of embryonic state or germinal state and actually realize it into something that was polished perfection for the '70s, for FM radio, or the suburban sound that was created. That kind of you know wonderful warm applesauce and what scraped out of rock in the '70s, and which Fleetwood Mac, along with the I think Eagles and a few other acts like that, was you know, a kind of de-racinated, de sound. I mean, no more protest, you know. Uh, we're actually going to get rid of We're going to whiten it. We're going to actually go for this kind of dreamscape, which is just a kind of wash of sound, which is you're just bathed in this glow, and it's taking you on a trip and actually telling you, I'll take it easy, right? That really worked. So when Fleetwood Mac and Ken Calais, and, you know, Ken Calais to this day, having spent 6,000 hours recording rumors, can't even listen to the record because it's so traumatic for him, This, this memory. Like you imagine like the opening hook for dreams, right? That was like, they went through like 40 times to capture it. And then, you know, and then they looped it. And just this kind of like incredible, like the perfect texture that they wanted for, yeah, to sound great on devices at that period of time. What is was lost in that, I think, is she would record stuff on her own. She would actually write out melodies, put stuff on cassette, bring it, and then they would do this kind of like hyper-produced magic with it one of the things I, I noticed over and over again, it's probably not surprising because, you know, all writers go through so is to like you write something, you write it again, and then you cut it down by half and there's your finished product. But the demos are exceedingly long versus the finished product. And then I noticed actually listening to the demos of songs like, you know, Sarah's a fairly long song, but the, you know, original demo was like 16 minutes. I mean, it was epic. Cut down, cut down, cut down, cut down, cut down. And So when you think, okay, well, it became a like hit single, Sarah, it was, it was on the charts, it charted. What was lost? in that process. And I found that a lot of musical detail was lost, a lot of filigree kind of emotional expression was lost, a lot of lyrics were lost, a lot of strange and interesting kind of harmonic moves that are intuitive on her part were lost, and a a little bit of eclecticism was lost. Yeah, I kind of wondered about that because the industry at the time there was an act of kind of, not suppression, but you know, kind of cleaning up and whittling down things and sort of distilling things. But then later on, there seemed to be real Songs that she was really, were really important to her that were not recorded or not fully produced. And then I started to think, well, wait a minute, there's something about these songs and there's something about working with these men, Fleetwood Mac and these producers, that suggested a kind of suppression, you know? And then, you know, there are phenomenal songs that that are out there, like Tone um, well, yeah. of Arc. One key song
0: that was that was excised is "Silver Springs." Yeah, you know, yeah. completely. A, a, an amazing song that, for lack of space on the vinyl, is it was uh, removed.
2: For sure, yeah. <laughs> you know, you could kick out something else and get that on there, right? No, that was important to hear That song. Yeah. And um it's a phenomenal song and it ends up, you know, on a sort of re-release and but she wanted the proceeds to go to her mother, and Barbara was a present to her, so it was personal to her. And I think the circumstances of that song were were embarrassing for for Buckingham. And I think uh he um was a big presence in the studio as Ken Clay will report and um he uh you know, was dominated uh, Ken Calais's assistants in the studio, and he had his way with a lot of stuff, and that song was one of them that was sacrificed, so, because if it wasn't for him, you know, the way things should go. So yeah, they could say, well, the vinyl lengths, but again, I mean, there's other songs that could not have been recorded instead of that, so to get that on there, but yeah, she was very angry about that and almost quit the band, and I think that was the beginning and the end. really creative at this point in the way we do things and you know seemingly a bit flighty and all the ways in which the sort of gendered critique got in there mm-hmm. but then they brought her in and suddenly she was stealing the show she was the person everyone wanted to see and then when Fleetwood mac finally put out that 75 you know self-titled album mm-hmm. and they went on tour and kicked that album's ass you know she was out there just blowing people away you know going into a kind of trance creating a seance like environment with rihanna and at that point Not only was there some resentment, but they realized that actually they had a phenomenon on their hands. You know, the star on the stage. Mm
0: -hmm. Brianna is she the goddess of steeds, maker of birds? Why do you think Stevie? I I actually one
2: of the things that I mean, in terms of her reading list, she she loves myths, she loves legend, right? She loves the iconic singers of the past, right back to Edith Piaf or Piaf. So she actually I think thought hard about how her onstage persona after Fritz period was pretty kind of. You know late 60s her she was a fairly modest kind of conservative she came from a very conservative background you a religious household and so it was her reading list and then when she came across this character rihanna who's referenced in this kind of penny dreadful novel called triad <laughs> which is you know about a, a haunted house in which the name of uh, deceased sisters whispered through the um, speaking groups in this old house it's a wild novel honestly and then she claims that she read this picked up this novel and read it and thought it was interesting. But then Len did a little bit more reading and found out that the character in this novel is named after a you know a Welsh seductress, kind of shape-shifting character, depending on the story she tells on stage and, and the amount she wants to reveal about it. She found out that actually there was um, somebody who had actually written a series of books based on this character, and who was living in you know in the United States in Arizona and visited her. But anyway, it's it's essentially Rhiannon is a character from Welsh myth. She's she's an empowered femininity along the lines of a sylph, spectral, otherworldly enchantress figures who can bring good and can bring you know bad and actually can bring men to their doom and can actually reward them in different ways. And she has, you know, she's basically a character that seems to come out of the Welsh version of pagan mythology. So there's the kind of Christian world and there's the pagan spirit world of the forest and the belief systems associated with the seasons and procreation. I think she was drawn to all of that, having read this novel and sort of followed the line back to it. And so she created a song just to kind of tribute to this character. But in reading about her and thinking about Rihanna, she actually found her look on stage. She was not going to be Janis Jobson re- Redux, you know, that kind of look. And she wasn't going to be a late 60s figure and she wasn't going to be a typical rock person. She was actually going to embody something mystical. And when she was performing Rihanna and actually that song took off and really became the showcase moment in the tours they did driving all over the United States, promoting that album. And that was it. I think she actually decided that actually she could kind of curate a look that actually would be like that figure. And that's more or less stuck with her uh, over the years. I mean, when you see that seventy-nine performance of Angel, which I just think is colossally great, she's like an old-time showgirl, right? From some, you can almost imagine it a saloon con- kind of context. But then she dances, and you know, this is the value of actually looking at these performances and listening to the music. You actually find out a lot more about her uh, than she says. You know, it's like, well, somebody taught her how to do those steps. Charleston and mashed potato, and she mixes them up in an interesting way. It's like somebody taught her how to do those things. She learned those things and it was back home, you know, and, um, talent shows way back and so forth was so still there. And she, she just pulled that out of the head and just stole the show with that great kind of, said 1979 St. Louis kind of performance.
1: So wait, you didn't find the person who taught her. <laughs> I, no, I did I'm not. Shocked. I just I looked
2: at that and I'm like, you know, knowing these steps and, you know, I was like, I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> what is going on here? And it was difficult to pull off in those high heels she was wearing. I did not. I did not. I, I mean, I tracked her childhood. I know, I know. Obsessively, you know, the fact that she spent time in Salt Lake City and, you know, had, you know, changed schools there and she was in this town contest. And I, I could not find actually where she learned. I know she took ballet lessons with a Russian ballet instructor here, it was kind of piecemeal, and you see some photographs of her in poses, ballet poses, and you look at them, and you're like, ouch. Uh, but uh, The other, these sort of um, kind of vaudeville burlesque um, dance things that she learned, uh, you know, maybe, uh, yeah, I don't know where she got them. I mean, she just, she's a great fan of of that period in American culture, certainly. I mean, Mabel Norman is kind of her alter ego, less more so than I would say Rihanna is. Rihanna is the mystic onstage presence, but in terms of a kind of femme fatale character, uh, Mabel, is, is really, I think, her muse. That's why the book goes off the rails when I end up talking about that song and Mabel Mormon.
1: I just have to ask you, have you ever attended the Night of a Thousand Stevies?
2: No, no. <laughs> no, no. But but I've been I've been invited, and I found out from dealing with Ronald Twee and other people who are, like, deeply involved in all of that, that their Night of a Thousand Stevies is just one thing. That they were like conventions,
1: various places.
2: would make conventions, Stevie Nicks conventions, and they actually had her brother come and complain about the fact that the merch sold wasn't authentic, or you know, and so forth. I vow to go, Um, and she herself vows to go to one of them and freak everybody out at a certain moment. I don't even know what a
0: Night of a Thousand Stevies is. (laughs) What is that?
2: It's just fabulousness. It's uh, (laughs) people come and they dress up in her different different manifestations of herself she loves it because she sees the plurality of her artistic persona actually represented by her fans and those the fans own her songs and they resonate with their lives in very special ways and they do these yeah these kind of karaoke um, best impersonation contexts. and it's just a great party and Deeply camp, t- deeply kind of you know it's polysexual, LGBTQ friendly. It struck me that like why is she you know part of her longevity and her fabulous has to do with the fact that she really appeals to you know a kind of camp sensibility. Is that like there's something about the way she performs is like you're having a terrible day you know you can't pay the rent you bust up your relationship you throw on a fabulous scarf and you go out there and you pull it off anyway. And there's some there's something about her idea that there's some acute Trauma, suffering that she manages to project at the same time as she actually does it in a fabulous way. And I think that that's something that really appeals to that group of fans.
0: Sounds like you got to take your 12-year-old daughter to this thing. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> Although she'll go with her own friends. Of course, of her. course she will. Yeah.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Dad, have you ever heard of this singer Stevie yeah, Nicks? Yeah, right? yeah.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, she actually heard she got to know Stevie Nicks because of that cranberry juice meme. Oh, oh yeah, right, 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 yeah. yeah. That was amazing. Which put that song back on the the playlist everywhere. Right. Oh, God. The book you look at
0: all the songs and, and really kind of raised, you do help raise the level of Stevie Nicks and her talent and artistry. Uh, It's mirror in the sky, the life and music of Stevie Nicks. It's out now. So go get it. It's really a wonderful read. And, you know, just kind of immerse yourself in the, in the world
2: of Stevie Nicks.
0: There's
1: something for everybody, something for every type of Stevie Nicks fan. Oh, so
2: thanks so much for reading it and having me on to talk about it. I really appreciate it.
0: All right. Another fabulous talk with Simon Morrison, the academic, the Princeton academic.
1: He's a smart guy. Do you think he dumbs it down for us?
0: Oh, clearly he does. Yeah, he's Superman that's come down to earth, and suddenly he's got super strength when he's on our podcast. So he can flex his muscles, and we are very much impressed.
1: (laughs) I am. No, he really is. He's he's a delightful guest, and he's always interesting to talk to.
0: Always good to have a friend of the show on, and so you know this is Simon's second time. We talked about Roxy Music last time. If you want to listen to Simon Morrison talk about Roxy Music's Avalon, that amazing album, he's got a thirty-three and a third book that's out, and we talked about it on a previous episode. You could subscribe to What Difference Does It Make
1: and never miss an episode.
0: Never miss an episode. Re- review all past episodes. We don't hide past episodes. You could find them all.
1: They are very easily accessible on any platform you'd like
0: subscribe enjoy just know that we have a new episode every friday so until next time this is dave this is holly check you later over and out